that way? You ought to try watching a video of yourself public speaking. That's the worst. So um, my, my son was like, Dad, I'm not in there on Sundays, and you're doing this Revelation series, and, and I really want to hear this sermon you preached. And, um, and I said, okay, well, it's on YouTube. So I walk in the living room, and he's got me up on the screen preaching in our living room. And I'm like, turn it off! How does anybody ever come to church? So um, um, I guess it's good that I feel that way, right? That means you don't have a boastful, arrogant, cocky pastor. Um, some people, um, some men think they're good-looking. i got to tell you, I have never seen a good-looking man in my life. Never once. Um, I've seen lots of pretty women. I'm married to the prettiest of all of them, but I've never seen a good-looking man. So, um, And then when I look in the mirror, I'm like, it can't get much worse, amen? But uh, Colossians 2, you can stay seated. We're going to read from verse 15 down through verse 20. But Joe, if you could turn me down just a hair, that would be great. The Bible says, um, and by the way, before we read, when you look at the original language, you get a lot of neat things. Um, I'm not the type of person that wants to fix the King James with the Greek. That's not me. Um, the men who translated the Bible into English all spoke fluent Koine Greek. By the way, if you have another version of the Bible in your lap, the translators did not speak fluent Koine Greek when they translated your version if it isn't the King James. Koine Greek isn't even spoken. You can't find anyone in the world that speaks it. But all of the men who translated, and there were close to 40 of them, all of the men who translated the Bible into, into English, into the King James Version of the Bible, they all were able to sit and have a full-blown conversation in Koine Greek. So that's part of the reason why the King James is so far superior to so many other texts, because the, the translators were just so far more advanced in their ability to, to translate. And I would say that if you were going to take an advanced college math class, do you want someone who wrote the textbook who is uh, uh, well beyond uh, the, their abilities of that book to write the book? Or do you want someone who's still trying to figure out the math of that book to put that book together? So, uh, But um, when you look at the original language, you get some really neat things out of it, and one of the neat things you pull out of it that you don't get from just reading it in English is that Colossians two fifteen through twenty is a poem written in the original language, stuck right in the middle of this book. Paul changes his writing format just for these six verses to draw attention to a very vital truth, and so much like Philippians two, uh, uh, I believe it's uh, verse six down through verse eleven is the key. Of the chapter Colossians two fifteen through twenty really is is the uh, center of the book. Let's uh, let's begin in verse fifteen there. And again, you're not going to get the poem, uh, the the rhythmic poem in English, but uh, trust me, it's there in the original language. It says, "And having spoiled, speaking of Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, I, I'm I'm in the no, I'm not Colossians two fifteen. Colossians 1, I'm sorry, look at Colossians 1.15, wrong chapter there. Colossians 1.15, who is the image of the visible God, the firstborn of every creature? For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. 
And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Now, that is the first stanza of the poem. The second stanza of this poem is verses 18, 19, and 20. Look at the shift. All right, verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. Who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence? For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, and having made peace through the blood of his cross by him, to reconcile all uh, things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And so um, after we get through the introduction, I think you'll understand the title a little bit better. But the title is this, A Church That Lives Counter to the Culture. Let's pray. Lord, tonight, would you help us as we look uh, at the book of Colossians? Help us to understand it. Uh, Lord, help us to see uh, where uh, we need to be admonished and encouraged. I, I pray, Lord, that on top of the, um, uh, the preaching that's done, the teaching that's done, Lord, that uh, weary souls would be encouraged by what they hear tonight. And, Lord, somebody who is maybe carrying uh, an emotional load who's discouraged tonight would walk out with a little bit more reason to smile. And so as we look at uh, the Bible tonight, uh, may we understand it and just value it and appreciate it that much more. In Jesus' name, amen. Anybody have a guess where Paul was when he wrote this letter? Anybody have a guess? Pauline? He was in prison. He was in prison. Um, I got thinking about this this week when I was putting this together. Why did Paul do most of his writing from prison? You know why I... What's that? He was isolated there. What else was he going to do, right? If you know much about Paul, when he wasn't in prison, he was on the go. He probably slept with his feet moving. Um, The guy never stopped. He just never stopped. And so while he did write some books outside of prison, most of them he did write while in prison for uh, preaching the gospel. And I I wonder sometimes if God was like, Paul, I need you to stop and write this. Paul's like, i got too much to do, Lord. And God said, okay, I'm going to put you in prison. Now, write it, Paul. (laughs) I don't know that to be the case, but I wonder sometimes, and heaven will uh, uh, maybe reveal some of that. But Paul was a go-getter. He was on the move. Paul did more traveling as a missionary without modern transportation than some uh, missionaries do with it today. But he was in prison when he wrote this letter. Now, here's an interesting fact about this book that doesn't seem to apply to too many of the rest of them. Paul did not start this church. On top of Paul not starting this church, Paul never even went to this church. Never even went there. You get clues to that as you read through the book. I encourage you to go back and read it on your own. But he had never even been there. And you say, well, Paul didn't start it. And Paul never even went there. Then why would God have Paul write a book to them if his influence over them would have been less and, and I would say to that that uh, we don't know what Paul's influence was on that church. Uh, Paul was a big deal. He was a big name uh, in, in, in many of the churches that would have surrounded Colossia. And so God would have had used Paul. God would have used Paul as an apostle to write the book to them. Now, we know that Paul got his information from the church's pastor. If you look down in Colossians chapter one, verse number seven, it says, as ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, 
who is for you a faithful minister of Christ. So he was their minister or their pastor. Epaphras was, and he was a fellow servant with Paul. So Epaphras was that link that connected uh, Paul to the church of Colossians. And so uh, uh, Epaphras had visited Paul in prison and had told the church about some, uh, uh, told Paul about some of the things going on in the church so that Paul was able to have a knowledge to write the book about. And as Epaphras reported to Paul, he told him, he said, hey, the church is doing really well. They really are. They're growing. They're going. But there are some societal culture pressures that are starting to get to some of them and could very easily seep in and take over the church. And so, Paul, the church is battling these things that are from without and trying to keep them from coming inside the church and hurting the church. And so, Paul, here are all the things the church is doing well. Here are some areas I am seeing that the church would struggle. Epaphras, we find in reading in other books of the, uh, of, of the Pauline epistles, Epaphras was born and raised in Colossia. And so he was from there. He started the church. He, uh, Paul had a lot of influence over him. And so we find uh, that being the origin of this, uh, him being visited in prison and then uh, Paul uh, writing uh, the book based off what he had been told by their pastor, uh, Epaphras. Now, uh, the, the religious culture of Colossia was very paganistic, paganistic. The bowing down and worshiping of false gods. And you say, well, I know of people that do that or, or you know, uh, how many of you here, here have ever seen a picture in a mis- missionary presentation or maybe online of a Buddhist or Hindu country where you've got thousands of people bowing down toward some idol? How many of you have ever seen a picture like that? And we think of paganism or idolatry, we think of that. And while they had those kind of things going on, it was much, much worse than that. You see, there were gods who were given towards sexuality and temples that were built where the priests of the temple were prostitutes. And they would worship sexuality in that way. Uh, I, we know that in this time, history tells us that Corinth would have uh, like a hot tub in the middle of the town where people would intermingle, not with not with their underwear on, but just nothing on. And public nudity was a norm in a lot of these uh, port cities and towns and things. And so there was a lot of immorality, lewdness, uh, uh, things were very bad and uh, paganism was everywhere. And the, there was the there was a pull for the people in the church to go back into paganism. There was also a push in the church for people to uh, become uh, Jews or go the way of the Judaism religion, which would have been what? We talked about this with the book of Galatians, the legalism. Remember, we talked about legalism in the church of Galatia. And legalism not being the modern definition of legalism, where a church holds to a more conservative view of the Bible. Legalism being adding, uh, adding things to salvation, where you've got to work your way to heaven. And so these uh, these uh, Judaistic people came in and they said, well, you need to observe the Sabbath and you need to um, uh, uh, eat meat that's kosher and the men need to be circumcised. And uh, if you're not willing to do those three things, at the least, you can't go to heaven. So they had Jews 
coming in the church, trying to push this on them. They had pagans outside the church trying to pressure them into continuing in their paganistic faith and just adding Jesus to the pile of, of little G-gods that were being worshipped. And so uh, they had all of that going on. And then they had a sin culture uh, uh, that was uh, uh, greatly influencing them and pressuring them, again, that was lewdness and sensuality. And so with all of that having been explained to Paul, Paul sits down and he writes the book of Colossians from prison. Now, um, uh, let's jump in here to the outline tonight. We've got uh, five points we're going to try to get through. And then there is a sixth point that will uh, be uh, basically an outline of its own. And uh, we're, uh, we'll be saving that for next week. And that will be uh, Colossians chapters uh, number three, uh, the, the last couple chapters there, three and four of the book. But let's jump in tonight and try to get down through point number five. And what we don't get through tonight, we'll save for uh, next week. Number one, notice Paul's encouragement to the church. Paul's encouragement to the church. Now, you compare this with like First Corinthians, where the whole book was basically a reprimand. He just ripped them from, from, from one end to the other. You know, uh, every portion of First Corinthians was a, a short thesis on something else they were doing wrong in the church. Colossians was not so much that way. Paul's going to address some of their pressures in the middle of the book, but he spends a good chunk of the book encouraging them and admonishing them and thanking them for their faithfulness. Notice letter A, his praise of the church. His praise of the church. So Paul begins the book by offering words of encouragement to the church. His praise of the church. And you can fill in those three blanks below there. Their faith, their hope, their love. Their faith, their hope, their love. Look at chapter 1, verse number 3 with me. Colossians 1, 3. Let's let the Bible uh, do the explaining tonight. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith. When I pause, read the next word out loud together with me. That means you got to look at your Bible. Amen. Colossians 1, verse number 4. Look there and uh, let's read them together. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which ye have to all the saints, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. And you go back to 1 Corinthians 13, the end of the chapter there tells us that the greatest the three greatest attributes are faith, hope, and charity. Uh, and here we find them again, faith, hope, and love. And Paul is saying, hey, look, you all, your faith is strong. Good job. Good job, Church of Colossia. Good job. You, you, you all have a strong faith. And you all carry with you uh, an abundant hope that Jesus is coming one day for you, and that if he doesn't come for you, when you die, you're going to go to heaven, you have the hope of heaven, and that you have about you a strong love for all the saints, all the saints. And that's important, because we all know that all the saints are not always easy to love, are they? Some saints are a little bit harder to love than others, aren't they? And depending on your personality, you're going to butt heads with a different person than, say, someone else in the church would butt heads with. But uh, that's why we have to submit our personalities to the Lord, and then he brings it all together and makes it happen. Um, and uh, if you go to church long enough, I promise you, there's going to be someone you don't like at church. I just promise you that. And you say, well, uh, I've gone to church a long time, and I've gotten along with everyone. Then I would encourage you to get involved more. Get involved more, and then there's going to be someone that you uh, <laughs> you uh, you butt heads with. I worked at a large church some time back, 
And uh, one guy told me, and, and the church had some issues within the way the church was ran, and, and I've worked at a lot of churches, so good luck figuring out. But uh, the had, church had some problems with the way it was ran, and people who were on the outside, just Sunday morning attending only, man, they thought that the pastor, and they thought that the staff was awesome. But then they started coming Sunday night and Wednesday night. They could see a couple little indiscretions and things. And then they got more involved in that. They even got hired. And I remember this person left well after I left. And the comment was, that church is just politics from, from top to bottom. Top to bottom. And, and the more you get involved with people, the more you realize they're broken. How many of you here ever been outside of a large city? And from a distance, you're like, wow. Look at that skyline. You ever driven to Hartford? Bridgeport doesn't have much of a skyline. New Haven doesn't, maybe a little bit of one in New Haven. But you ever driven to Hartford or maybe you go across the bridge in New York City and going over to the airports over there and you look to the right as you're going over the bridge and you see the skyline and it's magnificent, isn't it? And then you get into the city and it isn't so magnificent. And really that's how it is with people. From a distance, there are some people, they look great. But the truth is, if you were to follow them around and you were to, to see every dark corner of their life, there'd be things that aren't so pleasant. And, uh, you know, you look at um, uh, a guy who's disgruntled in his marriage, and he's like, well, my wife this, my wife that. And he looks over the fence and he sees another woman and he thinks, well, she, she doesn't act the way my wife acts. And I tell people this, um, the grass may be greener on the other side of the fence, but there's dirt under that grass. Every patch of dirt, or every patch of grass has dirt underneath it. So be happy with God, what God's given you and learn to love all the saints. And let this be said of us. I would love to have someone like an Apostle Paul come uh, or hear about our, our church and get a report of our church and the right back to be, hey, listen, uh, your reputation is that your faith in God is strong. Your hope in, in the Lord Jesus Christ is evident. And your love for all the saints is powerful. It's, it's evident. It's obvious. I talked about this a little bit on Sunday morning. But loving someone who has about the same amount of money as you do and dresses similar to you and talks like you do, loving someone like that, that's easy. In fact, lost people do that all the time at places called country clubs. You know what Sunday brunches are in Connecticut? It's a place where people who come from the same, the same cut out of life gather to have a meal together. It takes someone special to love someone who makes a lot less money than they do. And maybe even their character is less. And maybe even their personal hygiene is lower. That's loving all the saints. That's loving all the saints. Why do Baptist Church, just to put it plain, when someone, uh, let's say we have a, a, a lady or a man come off one of our buses on Sunday morning and uh, they're like Pauline mentioned. Where are you at, Pauline? Everybody moved around here. They're homeless. They come in and they, they're, uh, maybe they're not even here with the best of intentions. It ought to be a competition for the ladies to get that lady to sit next to her. It ought to be a competition for our men to grab up a man like that and say, hey, come sit next to me in church. I want to show you the love of Jesus. That's loving all the saints. It's easy to love people that are lovable. Go love the people that aren't lovable. 
while I'm chasing this rabbit down the hole, let me just reach all the way down in the hole, okay? Um, I've had a couple conversations with people lately on this topic. We have a racial issue in this country. Strong racial issue in this country. And I believe that the politicians of our country, on both the right and the left, are seeking to make that problem more pronounced. Don't take the bait. Don't take the bait. God made us all equal. It is very shallow of you to think less of someone because their skin's a little lighter or darker than yours, or even a lot lighter or darker than yours. Beneath the skin are the same bodily functions in all of us And beneath the skin lies a soul that is eternal that God died for. And don't you ever judge someone based on their race. Don't you ever look at someone and say they're not welcomed here because they're pink or purple or black or or brown or whatever color. Uh, That's not not pleasing to the Lord. That's not pleasing to the Lord at all. So uh, let's love all the saints. But... Paul here took some time to encourage the church by praising the church. Let her be noticed his prayer for the church. His prayer for the church. Look at verse number 9 and 10. It says there, chapter 1, For this cause we also, since the day we heard of it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that, look here, and I have this underlined in my Bible, this phrase, that ye may be filled, that ye may be filled with the, and then I have this underlined, Knowledge of his will, knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye may walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So let me give you these here. We pray, we, his prayer for the church. What was Paul praying for, for the church of Colossia? Well, he was praying that, uh, for, that they would have the wisdom for God's will, the wisdom to know God's will, or the wisdom for God's will that they would know what that is. Um, here's the next thing he prayed for out of these verses, that they would walk, or that they would be worthy of their walk. Worthy of their walk. Um, you've been saved. God has called you to a different walk than, he's, than someone who's lost. He's just called you to walk different. You're to talk different, act different, dress different. Music you're listening to needs to be different. You're to be entertained by things that are different, more pure and cleaned up. Um, uh, you're, to, uh, uh, you're to associate yourself uh, with um, uh, with habits that please the Lord, do you walk worthy of your walk, and then worthy of uh, worthy of their work, worthy of their work? Too many Christians look at Christian service or volunteering at church as an extra inconvenience. It's an extra inconvenience. I can't squeeze that in. It's pinching my life. It's it's encroaching on me. And I feel like the mentality is wrong. Um, helping in the nursery on the Sunday morning ought to be a privilege for you, not a chore. Working the sound booth, some of our men do, that ought to be a privilege, not a chore. Being a deacon here ought to be a privilege to serve the Lord, not a chore. Helping to decorate for an event ought to be something you do because God has given you the opportunity to help serve through the ministry of the local church, working the bookstore, look, whatever task it is, vacuuming the carpets, uh, washing the windows, going and visiting a shut-in, those things ought to be done not as an obligatory 
I must to please God. Look, God's going to love you the same whether you do his work or not. We don't do this to get God to love us. We do this because God loved us and we want to give back to him. That ought to be the attitude here. And the more we experience the love of God and the more we know the the love of God in our life and we focus on that, the more it ought to encourage us and press us to want to do more for him. It ought not be the pastor getting up and pulling teeth to get people involved. It ought to be people saying, Pastor, I've been reading the word of God and God has been showing me uh, uh, how much he loves me. And that is pushing me to where I have to do more for the Lord at church in order to pay back him for how much he's loved me. So um, uh, uh, Paul was saying, listen, I'm praying for you all. I'm praying for uh, a wisdom so that you can do God's will, that you would walk worthy of his calling and that you would work uh, in a way that is worthy. So Paul's encouragement to the church. Number two, notice Paul's exaltation of Christ the creator. Paul's exaltation of Christ the creator. Let's turn our attention back to that poem that was written in chapter one in verse number 15. Let's look at letter A, stanza one, the creation. The creation. Um, and then I'll give you the subpoint below that. Notice the power of the Creator. So the first stanza of this poem that Paul writes in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, the emphasis is on Christ prior to the New Testament or prior to Christ coming to earth. The emphasis is the same as John 1 that we looked at Sunday morning. How that he, John 1, 1 through 5, how that he created the heavens and the earth, and all things were created by him, and without him was not anything made that was made, to quote John 1 there. But let's see here how John 1 parallels with what's being said here in Colossians 1, verse 15. Look here. Who is the image of the invisible God? Well, Jesus, let me pause there. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Has anybody ever here seen God the Father? Do you know humans have seen God the Son? He is the visible image of our invisible God. And then it goes on to say, uh, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created. Now look here and notice from verse 15 through 17, how many references to creating something are made. Verse 15, the last word is creature. Firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created. Created, when I pause, read, that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And uh, he is before all things and by him all things consist, consist, created, created, creature. And the idea here is that, hey, God is a creator and he has the power to have created everything everything there isn't anything that you see that god didn't create not a thing and the list goes into dominions and power uh, there's no there's no authority figure out there god god created the authority that person has and he created the person that has it and you say well my boss is being unfair to me god created your boss and he created the power that your boss has. And so take it to the Lord. Don't go griping about it behind the boss's back. Take it to the Lord. But uh, uh, the power of the creator. Notice the purpose of the creation. Look back at verse 17. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Do you know why God, why Jesus made you? Not so that he could please you, but so that you could please him. 
Um, are we expecting God to come, we ask, give in, and be who we want Him to be? Like He revolves around us? Or are we living our lives like we revolve around Him? All things are made and consist for Him, for His pleasure. Um, the truth is, well, you, you remember the story about the blind man, right? Jesus walking the earth and the blind man came along. And his disciples, sometimes, you know, it's like, can you just listen to what you're saying? Because you sound really dumb right now, okay? That's what I want to say to the disciples. But they were uneducated and Christ was training them. And they say, hey, Jesus, uh, was this man born blind because of his sin or his parents' sin? And it's like, he's blind, but that doesn't mean he's deaf. He can hear you. And Jesus says, he wasn't born blind because of anyone's sin. He was born blind to bring me glory. To bring me glory. Um, We think, God, how could you let this happen in my life? This is so unfair. I think of a a, a couple who can't get pregnant. Or I think of uh, a couple that has a miscarriage. Or I think about a family with a child that contracts cancer and is dying of cancer or a wife who finds out in the middle of the night that her husband's dead uh, suddenly uh, because of an accident or a husband who finds out his wife has died because of a drunk driver accident or uh, or just any tragedy and we step back and go god how could you allow this to happen to me and it's time we hit the pause button there take a time out and say god did not make you so he could revolve around you God made you so you could revolve around Him. And if He's brought tragedy in your life, maybe He's trying to bring great triumph out of that tragedy that will even more pleasure Him down the road. And so, quit questioning God. God turns to the blind man and He heals him. That man had been blind for decades. And Jesus healed him. That man had to suffer for decades so that he could be used as a testimony for for millennial to come. And so you never know. But uh, the point here is that you were created uh, to pleasure God. That is the purpose of the creation of Jesus Christ. So stanza one focuses on the old creation or the, the creation of the material, the creation of the planet. Creation or stanza two focuses on the new creation. The new creation. And let's see here uh, how that the attention is turned to uh, the, the church. Now, between stanza one, this is very important, please don't miss this. Between stanza one, where Jesus is the creator of the earth, and stanza two, where Jesus is the head of the church, between those two stanzas, Jesus comes to earth, he's born, he lives, he dies, he raises from the dead, and he ascends to heaven. So that part of the story is not mentioned, but that's what separates stanza one and stanza two. Now, uh, stanza two, notice here, the head of the church, the head of the church, look at verse 18 of chapter one. It says there, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence, for it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. So picture this body, and on this body is a head, and that head is the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, what makes up the body? All of us make up the body. Why don't Baptist Church, we have a version of this body. Jesus Christ is the head. And the rest of the body is all of us. We're to be 
uh, as other Pauline epistles put it, jointly fit together unto good works. That means we've got to get along. We've got to get along. What happens when the bodily systems, let's say the muscular system and the circulatory system, decide they want to argue with each other? You know what that means? You're sick and it's time to go to the hospital. Right? You can't have that. Um, uh, all of these disorders, the liver shuts down and quits working, or maybe there's an infection in the arm and you've got to go to the hospital and you find out now you've got to amputate the arm. Well, if this church is going to function and really reach the community, then we've got to allow Christ to be the head that calls the shots. Really quick here before we move on to the second part of this is the body only works if there's one head. There's one head. Okay? Uh, the brain tells the hands what to do. Okay? There's obviously, not to get uh, too biological on you, but there are, not that my knowledge of biology is all that deep, okay? But uh, uh, there are involuntary actions. You don't have to think about breathing. You do that because you just do that. You don't have to think about digesting. You do that because your body does that. You don't have to think about uh, your heart pumping blood into the four chambers and, and taking, putting oxygen in and taking it out. You don't have to think about that. Your body just does that. And, uh, but there are, there are involuntary actions and there are voluntary actions. And all the voluntary actions are controlled by the head. My hands are moving and I'm using them to speak. My voice tone and, and volume is being flux, uh, fluctuated by my brain that is the control center telling it all to do that. And Jesus Christ is to be the head of the church that tells the rest of the church what to do. And we know from other passages of Scripture that the pastor acts as the leader of the church, that is to seek out the mind of Christ for that particular church and dictate to the church as though it's the mouthpiece what the mind of Christ is in that area. And so we're to, we're to follow the, that protocol. So the head of the church next noticed the healing of the church. My favorite part of the poem is verse 20. Look there. And having made peace... Through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. So we have peace with God through the blood of the cross. I hope you've experienced that tonight. You need the healing power of God's grace. You have to have that. And that comes through the blood of Jesus. And I would tell you tonight that if you haven't put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to save you, you can't work your way to heaven. You must trust Jesus in his death and on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. We'll get into the resurrection of Christ in, in, in uh, uh, next week. Let's move on here and look at number three, Paul's explanation for his suffering. Now, some of you tonight, maybe you came to church and this is exactly what you need to hear. How many here tonight either are suffering in some way, whether that's physically, emotionally, spiritually, um, or you can sense that you will be suffering soon? Would you raise your hand if there's some sort of suffering going on in your life? Keep them up there for a minute. Keep them up for a minute. That is 80% of the crowd. 80% of the crowd. And for the rest of you that didn't raise your hand, your time of suffering could be right around the corner. It's one phone call away, one text message away. It's one moment away. Now, why is it that we suffer? Paul, you got to remember, Paul's writing this letter from prison. From prison. 
and he's going to talk about uh, why it is that he is suffering. Letter A, notice the accusation. The accusation. Look at chapter 1, verse 24. It says, Who now rejoice in my suffering for you and fill up uh, uh, that which is, be, uh, which is behind of the affliction of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, who, uh, which is the church, whereof I am made a minister or a servant or slave according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Even the, And here's what I want you to get. Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to the saints. We know this mystery as the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he would write a whole, the whole book of Romans about and go into great depth as far as that goes. But please understand that Paul presenting this new message to the world that Jesus saves, it's a message that's now been preached for over 2,000 years. And the world is accustomed to hearing it in a lot of ways. Uh, and, and at this point, it's not a new message like it was back then. And it's not as much of a mystery now to those of us that have studied the Bible. Commentaries have been written. But please understand that when Paul, during this time, the Bible wasn't even done being written. These people had no idea how all of it worked. They knew that Jesus Christ had come and, and died on the cross. They knew he had risen from the dead. It was a public thing. Public historians have written about it. And uh, that was probably common knowledge. But what all the ins and outs of it were, they didn't know. But Paul did. We know that Paul went to the backside of the desert in Arabia. And Christ directly taught him uh, what that meant. But here you have Paul saying, I'm suffering because I was willing to announce this. And what happened when Paul went around and zealously proclaimed this mystery and revealed the mystery? Well, you had people that loved Caesar over here in this camp, and they said, you're telling us that Jesus is king? No! Caesar's king! And then you have people over here in a religious camp who's saying, hey, quit making such a big deal out of Jesus. It's Abraham. It's Moses. It's the prophets. It's the Torah and the law. And how dare you come in preaching this message that these Gentiles don't have to be converted to Judaism. And so Paul is crunched between the political crowd and the religious crowd, and he just didn't have a whole lot of friends. And so because of that, he was thrown in prison. The accusation from this crowd was, it isn't King Jesus, it's King Caesar. And the accusation of this crowd is, it's not the grace, it's the law. And Paul was uh, accused by all sides, but Paul just stood for what he knew was right. Letter B, notice the affliction. The affliction. Verse uh, number 24, he makes reference to the affliction. Well, what was it? Constantly being beaten, uh, uh, thrown in prison many times. Um, disliked, having his name drugged through the mud, uh, all of the nastiness you can imagine. Listen, whatever it is that you're going through tonight, whatever suffering that you're feeling, um, the Apostle Paul probably would have switched trials with you in a heartbeat. How many of you here know this about trials? That while your trial is rough for you, if we were able to put our trials on uh, a flash drive, and swap them with each other. And now Jason started struggling with Mark's troubles. And Mark instantaneously started struggling with Jason's troubles. Next week they would probably trade back. 
Now, for you, that trial is really bad. Someone else is going through something else entirely different. And for them, it's just as bad. You say, but, but pastor, I know, I know mine is worse. Okay. There is somebody on this planet who's going through something worse than you. I promise. The affliction. Look, why do we suffer? The better question is, why do we have um, a shallow attitude towards suffering? And again, I'm not trying to throw stones at you. I just want you to really think about this right now. You're going through a, a struggle in your life. You're carrying some pain in your heart. What does God have in store for that? Why does God want you to, to go through that? Is there something big that you're missing? Notice letter C, Paul's acceptance. Paul's acceptance. All through this passage, and again, I encourage you to read from chapter 1, verse 24, down through chapter 2, verse 5, what you find is that Paul is all in on accepting this Pain in his life. Let me give you an example here. Look at uh, chapter 1, verse number 28. Whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Wherefore I also labor, striving again according to his work, uh, to, or to his working, which worketh in, in the mightily. Uh, look at verse 1 of chapter 2. For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you. And for them at Laodicea. Notice here, he's talking about the pain he's going through. And he's saying, I'm going through this for you, church of Colossians. For you, church of Laodicea. And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be uh, comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledging acknowledgement of the mystery of God and the Father uh, and of Christ. Uh, and, and he goes on and talks about this. But what he's saying is that because I'm suffering, you can be comforted. My suffering brings about your comfort. My suffering ought to bring about an inspiration to you to go out and say no to the pressures of sin, knowing that someone is suffering and, 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 and standing for what they believe and being willing to suffer for it. And now you can, you can be inspired and comforted to go out and do something else. We, uh, we have a big fancy theological term we use when we talk about somebody who is uh, suffering for someone else's behalf. Does anyone know what that term is? Transubstantiation? No. Uh, empathy is a, a non-theological term. The reason why I asked if any of you knew what it was because I forgot what it was. Um, uh, I, I had a... Uh, uh, a mental lapse. That's all right. I'll remember it later. But the idea is there that Jesus, I'll probably remember while I'm uh, uh, teaching here, but Jesus suffered so that you don't have to. He suffered that you don't have to. Forget the word to catch the point. Forget the word to catch the point. Jesus' suffering brings about my peace. What's that? Propitiation. That's the word. Your suffering right now, 80% of the crowd raise their hand. Is it that you are suffering so that God can give peace to someone else? Is it that you're suffering now so that God can use the fullness of that trial you're going through so that so that, that can bring peace to someone else's heart later? We think in our moment, right there on the spot, we say, God, why are you letting me go through this? And we see the shallowness of it. 
Or, or rather, we just see it in the moment and we forget there's a, there's a greater picture around it. And God is saying, look, I'm having you go through this so that later you can be a blessing or so that you can be a blessing and help to someone that you'll never meet, that you'll never talk to, or that you'll never know about. And God wants us to handle those things graciously. So here Paul is suffering, and, uh, and, and uh, he's, his suffering is able to be a great comfort to others. And I hope that I can get to the place where I have the same attitude toward my trials and suffering that Paul had toward his. We'll pick up there next week. I hope that you'll take some time to think about what we've covered. Go back and look at Colossians chapter 1 again. And uh, next week we'll jump into chapter 2. Let's stand to be dismissed. Thank you for coming this evening. Jacob Okai, why don't you close us in prayer?